Let's open our copies of God's Word once again to Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel. We come this morning to the Annunciation, chapter 1 of Luke, beginning with verse 26. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. Let's pray together. In reverence we ask now, Lord that we will have hearts as your people that are open to receive your word. There are hearts here that are broken. There are others who are anxious. There are some that are in need of peace, others that are quite joyful. You know our hearts, you know our needs, and we pray that your Holy Spirit will take the word and apply it to our hearts as we have need so that we may glorify you in our Christian walk. But Father, surely, surely there are others here today that do not know you at all, who do not know what it means that they are lost and undone and in need of a Savior, and only you can open the heart, only you can save the sinner. And just as you have saved so many here, we pray for the salvation of those in our midst who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that having walked in this place lost, they would walk out believers in Jesus, saved from sin their guilt removed, trusting in the Savior who came into this world to achieve and accomplish this very thing. And now, Father, may the word of the Lord indwell us richly. May the words of our mouths and meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. These things we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Will you stand with me with your copy of God's word, Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. This is the word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Please be seated. Surely, as we read this text, it should lead us to worship as we contemplate together the theological mystery of the incarnation of our Lord. Worship, yes, it leads us to worship. The infinite became finite. The eternal, subject to time. God became man. 
And it is that event that is being announced by the angel Gabriel in this passage. Now, remember with me the background. Gabriel has already announced to Zechariah the birth of John the Baptist, who will be the forerunner of the Messiah. 400 years of silence has now been broken by that announcement. Gabriel is now sent by God to Mary. And this happens the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy as she carries John, the forerunner of Christ. Mary is at Nazareth, an humble place, an humble young man, young woman. The Lord did not send the angel to rich and worldly young women in Jerusalem, but chose this humble woman in Nazareth. The Savior comes to us in utter humiliation. As our Westminster Shorter Catechism says, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of a cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Yes, certainly, it is a wondrous thing, as Paul has told us, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. The announcement is private, and it is coming to a young woman who is described as a virgin, parthenos, which means she has never had sexual relations, though she is engaged to Joseph. Now, engagements, betrothals in those days were quite different than engagements or betrothals in ours. Stage one, the bride price was paid, and then there would be a public announcement of the engagement. And then about a year later, as the woman especially shows herself to be faithful in her virginity, he now can take her home. Girls were engaged very young, often as early as age 12, sometimes 13, probably rarely later than age 14. It was a different day, a different time. There was a different life expectancy. Joseph, we are told in the text, is of the house of David. The Messiah must be of David's line, which is Joseph's adoptive son, Jesus, would be legally. Now, do you remember last week how I quoted Klaus Schilder, who said that as you move through the Old Testament, that the barometric pressure continues to rise and rise, pushing us on to this great event at Bethlehem? Well, the barometric pressure is almost as high as it can get. We are almost at Bethlehem. We are not far from it. Now we begin as we look at the text by seeing Gabriel greets Mary. Gabriel greets Mary. In heaven, things were stirring. God had called Gabriel to his throne. He sent his messenger to this unimportant village of Nazareth, a village that is not even mentioned in the Old Testament. Of, of which it was said in John 1.46, can any good thing come from Nazareth? And he greets this young woman. Can you imagine sitting there, presumably in her own room alone, and the angel comes and greets her? That would be quite a surprise, would it not? Kare, essentially shalom, a call to joy. And she is addressed as favored one. Now, let me mention only in passing that there is no justification for Rome to take this text and venerate Mary unduly, or to say, as Pius X did, if I may quote him, that Mary is the dispensatrix of all the gifts that our Savior purchased for us by his death and by his blood, the supreme minister 
of the distribution of all the graces, the distributor of all the treasures of his merits. No, there is no justification for that sort of thinking at all. Mary, too, was a sinner. Mary needed a Savior, and she is going to bear the Savior. The angel assures her of God's being in this from the start. The Lord is with you, and my, she would need that assurance. This young girl, no halos, no crowns. Mary is understandably perplexed. We read in verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The word greatly troubled, it means that she is very, very deeply perplexed. She never dreamt of this. She's been thinking of her marriage to Joseph. Maybe she was contemplating the upcoming women in the synagogue shower that would be thrown for her. (laughs) But from the throne of God comes Gabriel, and she's greatly perplexed. She's confronted with an angel fresh from the throne of God bringing divine revelation from the mouth of the Lord. Maybe to Isaiah such an angel would come, or to Daniel, but to me, Mary must have thought. She ponders it. I, favored of God, these words don't fit me. And isn't this the first element of genuine faith, to be stripped completely of our own self-reliance? God works in the strangest way among the most unlikely people in the most unlikely places such as Nazareth. No, Mary, you don't deserve this. The message that is brought is one of showing grace to the unworthy, to the ill-deserving. It's all about the salvation of sinners, Mary. And so the angel in verse 30 brings assurance, do not fear. God, through Gabriel, comforts her heart, comes with blessing, not with judgment. Mary has found favor with God. That is to say, she is God's gracious choice. God is about to do something epical in his plan of redemption. It is the pinnacle of all of the miracles that have ever been done at any epoch of the turn of revelation in history. Now we move on in the text and we see, secondly, Gabriel's announcement. Gabriel's announcement to Mary. He tells her several things. First, Mary will have a son. The language seems to reflect the, the language of Isaiah seven fourteen: A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And she is told that his name will be Jesus. Here for Emmanuel in Isaiah 7.14 is placed the name Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus means? Jesus means Jehovah saves. God is a saving God. In Matthew 1.21 and following, we are told more about that name. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Luke doesn't say more, but Mary knows the meaning of the name. How can a child be our Savior from sin. How can that be? How can that happen? Well, the angel goes on and speaks of his ministry and his position. In verses 32 and 33, will you read them again? 32, he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So we are told, first of all, this son will be great. 
which is a possible reference to the book of Micah, in which in Micah chapter 5, we are told, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of all the earth, which is a messianic passage. He will be great, and no wonder he will be great. He is the one who brings salvation to lost sinners like us. He is great. How great? He is the Son of the Most High, we are told in verse 32. He is the Son of God. That's what that means. The Hebrew expression would be El Elyon. God exalted, the Most High God. And Son here means that He shares the nature of God, the being of God, It is a reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. That is to use church historical language. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the son of the most high. And then we are told by this angel, or Mary was told, that he would be of David's line. Now there is very regal language in verse 32. Is there not? He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. This is regal language indeed. We read of that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which was a promise of this Messiah who was to come, and of his rule and of his reign. And in verse 13 of that passage, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for Ever. And in verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the promise that was given of the Messiah who would come way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And that he is of David's line is of great importance indeed, and so much so that it is stressed again in Luke 1.69, Luke 2.4, Luke 3. 31, and all the way into the book of Acts, as Luke writes in chapter 2, verse 30. And we will see this as we move along in Luke. So he's the son of the Most High. He is of David's line. This is what makes him great. And also he has an everlasting reign. Again, verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his, of his kingdom there will be no end. Now again, an allusion to Second Samuel, but also a possible allusion to Isaiah, the ninth chapter. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Nothing can stop his kingdom. Nothing can keep this child from reigning and ruling. And so you begin to understand, don't you, that this is no ordinary child, that there is something extraordinary about this child, that he is to be a king 
upon the throne who rules and reigns forever. But wait, we know about this child. We know what happens to him, that over his cross will be written, King of the Jews, in which it is said essentially some king, but they misunderstand the king and they misunderstand his kingdom. It is a kingdom of grace that encompasses the world. This king will die for sinners on a cross, yes, but this king will also be raised by God's power from the dead and will come again. So that Paul the Apostle can speak of him even now as the one who is is exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And of that kingdom, Daniel chapter 9 predicts, To him was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You know, some of you have been to Westminster Abbey in in London. If you've not noticed this when you're there next, you might go to the chancel of Westminster Abbey and notice that above the place where British monarchs have been crowned, there is an inscription from Revelation eleven fifteen: The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. There is at least the recognition in the history of England that the puny little kings and monarchs that were crowned there in Westminster Abbey are underneath the lordship of the great king who rules and reigns over all people, all hearts, over things animate and inanimate, over all things created because he is their creator, over the redeemed and over the lost, and he does so forever and ever and ever. The Christ who came in humility, in utter humiliation, will one day come in glory. How can this child save us? He is God come in the flesh. Revelation eleven fifteen says of him, He shall reign forever and ever and ever. Now, I think we should pause for a moment and contemplate this great reality. This child who came into Bethlehem long ago, who came in utter humiliation, who went through this world with all of its poverty and suffering and died on a Roman cross, there dying for the sins of sinners like us, rose from the dead, ascended on high, and the promise of the reliable New Testament is that this same Jesus will come again. He will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel, and he will come to be glorified in his saints who have believed in his name. That every knee, every knee here today, every knee in the universe, every knee will on that day bow before his sovereignty. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess his lordship to the glory of God the Father. I, as his minister, call upon you to bow within your heart 
now. You and I will bow. Whether you wish to bow or whether you do not, you will bow. I will bow. Every one of us will bow. He's the king. He's on the throne. He rules and he will reign forever. Bow before him. Embrace him as Lord and Savior. Trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. But then thirdly, as we move along in the text, Mary's weakness and God's almighty power is what we see. Mary's weakness and God's almighty power. Verse 34, Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now this is not doubt on her part. It's befuddlement. She is befuddled by the entire incomprehensibility of it all. Mary was God's choice, not some self-reliant woman in furs. God is not a respecter of your position. God came to this young woman and he tells her, I'm going to be directly and powerfully involved in this. In verse 35, the angel says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The power of the Most High will overshadow Mary. Who is this that will overshadow? This is the God who creates life, the Holy Spirit, the original agent in creation, who is El Elyon. He will create life in Mary's womb. And he will overshadow her. The language really of Exodus 40 in which there is the overshadowing power of the presence of God as it is filling the tabernacle. The same language that is used in Luke chapter 9 of the transfiguration as they were all caught up in this great cloud on the day of transfiguration. When he speaks of the angel, when the angel speaks of the Holy Spirit overshadowing, he is simply saying that God's glorious, powerful presence will see to it that this virgin conceives and bears a son. The child, Gabriel further announces, will be holy, will be the son of God. And there's something deeper here than only the messianic hope. The Messiah is the son. Now, I'm not suggesting that Mary at this point fully understood what the angel was revealing. But she would come to understand, and we understand, don't we? Enclosed in this announcement when viewed in light of scriptural revelation as a whole is the wonder of the eternal sonship of our Lord. The Son is the eternal Son of the Father, and that is an eternal relation. The Son is the second person of the Trinity. He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. He is one with the Father. This is the one who will be born of Mary. And so the Lord in his grace gives a sign to confirm it in verses 36 and 37. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary does not ask for a sign, but God gives her a sign in grace because he loves to assure his people. And he says, 
because your relative also has conceived, and we will see very soon that they will meet, that because this has happened, you can rest assured that I am involved in this great matter, that I can do the impossible. If I can bring about the pregnancy, Elizabeth carrying John the Baptist from this ancient woman, then I can do this. I can do the impossible. Nothing is beyond God's power. Now remember his power. This is modeled on Genesis chapter 18, in which God makes the promise to Abraham that Sarah will bear the son of promise. And there in Genesis 18, we read, nothing is impossible for God. But the Hebrew word davar can mean thing, and it also can mean word. And in Genesis, it very probably has the meaning, no word is impossible for God. Mary believes God's word. Now, some of you who are here this morning are about Mary's age. And she filled her heart with God's word. When we come to the Magnificat, in which she bursts into praise because of this great thing that God is doing, bringing the Savior into the world through her, we will see how filled she was with the knowledge of the word of God. She relied upon it. She trusted it. She lived upon the promise of God's word. She was not filling her heart and mind with cosmopolitan or some other soul-deadening source. She believed in the redemptive promise of God and filled her mind with his word. What about you? Don't lose sight of God's word. Believe his power, the spirit that hovered over the waters in Genesis, who raised Jesus from the dead, who indwells each believer. He will bring you to your appointed end. Trust and rely upon his promise. But develop and grow in that by filling your mind, as Mary very clearly did, with the knowledge of God's word from a very early age. But then we have something else that we can only mention today and must take up next week. And that is that very clearly taught in this passage is the virgin birth of Christ. You see in verse 27... The angel came to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And in verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Now again, more next week, but for now. The eternal and immutable person of the Logos assumed human nature. Two natures. He is God and man inconfusedly united in the womb of the Virgin Mary. This is grace. This is grace. God came down. Did you hear that? Do you see how wondrous this is? Do you begin to grasp how stupendous it is? Are you filled with wonder, love, and praise? God, the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God, the second person of the Trinity... God came down, 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 infinitely down to save sinners like you and like me. Because salvation from sin is not by any work that we could do, 
but altogether is by his gracious intervention. If Jesus had been produced by means of a human father, he could never have paid the debt of our sin. And this should lead us to wonder. Solomon asked in 1 Kings 8, Will God really dwell on earth? Thinking, of course, of the temple. But the greater answer is Jesus. Yes, he did dwell on earth. He came and he shared our humanity, our bones, our blood, our suffering. He came to take our hell. And God hides himself in Christ's humanity that he might reveal his glory as the saving God of his people. So some of you here, you don't believe in miracle? God confronts us in this text. He confronts us in our stupid, silly, autonomous pride. And he tells us that we can be saved in no other way but in Christ, born in a barn, laid in a trough. You must be saved in a virgin-born, crucified Jew who was raised from the grave bodily on the third day. You need a Savior. You need a Redeemer. You need a Savior born of a woman to redeem humans. You need a Savior who is God who assumed human nature. You need a virgin-born Savior to save sinful humans. And the greatest miracle, the greatest miracle really, is that he did not disdain the womb of a sinful woman. And he did not disdain your need or mine. And he came into this world. And those saved from sin know that it is just a little thing for God to overshadow a woman and cause her to conceive. If he can save me from my sin, he certainly can bring about the virginal conception that is needed for my impure birth. You need his pure birth to remove the taint of your impure birth. Someone here The Holy Spirit is working in your life and you're ready for the message that God dwells with sinners. You're tired of the farce of your own righteousness. You're glad to hear that God justifies sinners and you're ready for the merriest of Christmases because you will also trust in this virgin-born Savior. The text of Scripture is plain. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, not a Christ of your imagination. The Christ of the Bible Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We're not done. Fourthly, Mary's response, verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let it be. I obey. I submit. I follow. I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. She acknowledges the lordship of the Lord by calling herself a bondservant, and despite the trouble it would bring. What trouble, by the way? Well, it might have entered her mind. What is Joseph going to think about this? It perhaps would have entered her mind. What will my parents say? What will my family think? What will the village of Nazareth think of this? What about my reputation? 
if only the Lord will be honored, this young woman was ready to say, let it be according to your word. No matter what trouble, no matter how hard. I desire to be the Lord's servant in any way that pleases him. Don't you? Bishop Hall, one of our sound Anglicans of the past, said, All disputations with God after his will is known arises from infidelity. There is not a more noble proof of faith than to captivate all the powers of our understanding and will to our Creator, and without all questionings to go blindfold whither he will lead us. You know, there's a thought that is suggested to me every, every year when we begin to look at these texts. A thought that is suggested by our text and the whole theme of the incarnation with which I want to end this morning. The angel Gabriel came from the throne of heaven with a message to this unknown Hebrew girl who lives in obscurity. Through her, God is working out his plan of salvation from the depths of our sin. And here's one of the sweetest kernels of the, of the narrative of the Christmas theme of the incarnation. Let's look at it by asking the question, where do we find God? Now that's a question in one way or another with which I'm confronted, not only as a fellow sinner, but also as a pastor quite often. Lord, someone says, where is God in this thing in my life? A woman's husband has left her. Where is God? A man is dying of an incurable disease. Where is God? A young person has a broken friendship. Where is God? A provider has lost his or her job. Where is God? A student didn't get into college. Where is God? Pastor Saeed languishes in a prison in Iran. Where is God? Well, look at the Christmas narrative. Mary, says Gabriel, is favored by God. And how is this favor going to look? Well, soon we will see her very pregnant, riding on a donkey, no decent place to birth her son, struggling with the pains of childbirth, wrapping the Son of God in swaddle. Her son grows up. He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He goes to a Roman cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mary's favored. Where do we find God? My friend, totally depraved sinners do not find God. God finds us. God found us in a manger. God found us in a cross. God found us in the empty tomb. God finds us in our sin and need. And God finds us in the very places where we are most likely to ask, Where is God? Judging from appearance, Mary should have concluded, it's all an illusion. I didn't experience grace after all. Judging from appearance, who would have said, this baby is God in the flesh, or that Christ on a cross was saving us from sin? Judging from appearance. But Mary really was favored by God despite appearances. So take this into life and never doubt God's goodness because you don't see how God is being good. The incarnation should reorient our thinking so that we see the significance of the small 
and the everyday and the mundane and the unnoticed and the physical and what appears to contradict God's word of blessing. Right in the midst of what appears to be God's absence, this is where he was. This is where he is now working with almighty power. Do you see? Do you believe it? Do you receive it by faith? And God's people said, Amen. Amen.